Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. I was reading a newspaper article about um, cows and the amount of methane that that cows emit. The article, if I remember correctly, was something on the order of like 600 liters per dairy cow per day. For a, for a farm that has a thousand dairy cows, that's 600,000 liters per day. Okay, well, what is that in terms of value? The light bulb moment was, oh my gosh, you know, this is a this is a valuable resource that's just going into the air. There's got to be something we can do with that. And that's, that's where it all started. Yes, we're in the company of Mark Harema this week, CEO and founder of New Light Technologies, the company turning greenhouse gas emissions into plastic. Oh yes, stay tuned. Yes, yes, welcome back. Episode 26, this is, of The Better Business Show. Thanks for coming back to us. Uh, And welcome to any new listeners out there that are coming to us for the first time. Uh, Be sure to go to betterbusiness.show on the website for all of our back episodes uh, other 25 on there for you to, to make your way through. Loads and loads of great stories, loads of great businesses, loads of great insight and advice and tips and, and new and interesting ways of doing business in uh, here in the 21st century. Uh, and that's what we're all about. We're all about trying to encourage big businesses to learn from those small, agile, nimble startups and innovators and entrepreneurs who have realized that uh, business as usual is just not going to happen anymore and uh, and there's other ways of doing stuff uh, so if you want that and, and you like that then uh, do subscribe to the show every week and and tell your friends and family and colleagues all about us we'd love to have you on board as a as a regular listener uh, as i say you can subscribe via itunes uh, you can also find us on soundcloud and stitcher and deezer and tune in so loads of different apps that you can use to listen to the show So it's been another busy week, really. Uh, I spent some time with Marks and Spencers in the last in the last week. Uh, obviously, a company we talk a lot about on this show for good reason. Uh, they held uh, held their annual uh, Plan A event in London uh, last week, so I was invited down to find out uh, what sort of progress they were making. Um, I mean, in terms of a, a corporate sustainability program, there's, there's not many more ambitious programs out there than, than Plan A. Uh, which has worked incredibly hard over the last sort of 10 years to really sort of embed uh, lots of kind of environmental and social principles into the business. Uh, but really interestingly, they had the, the CEO there, Steve Rowe uh, from Marks and Spencers, who kind of opened up proceedings. Uh, and really interesting remarks, actually, despite the success of Plano over the last sort of 10 years or so, at reducing impacts and, and, and doing all the wonderful things to kind of reduce impacts, reduce risk, uh, build more resilient and sustainable supply chains, all that good stuff. Uh, he made the interesting point that, that few consumers that actually shop in Marks and Spencer stores in the UK and Europe across the world still don't have a clue what Plan A is or what it stands for. And, and he really, really wants to he really wants to, to fix that. I'm sure he's got more pressing matters on it on his mind right now. Of course, the day after that event uh, last week, uh, Marks & Spencer's released its quarterly figures, which didn't look good at all. So I'm sure Mr. Rowe has probably got other things on his mind. I think it was like a 9% plunge in their clothing sales during the first quarter of the year. Um, so yeah, lots of challenges for that company. But Plan A is, is still very much a part of that business. And uh, you know, central to all of their kind of you know strategy going forward, um, and it was a really good event. They had some really good speakers on. They had a, a guy called Dominic uh, Woffrey from uh, World Economic Forum, who was t- 
tasked with kind of painting a picture of what the future might look like for a company like Marks and Spencers. Uh, and, you know, he talked a lot about risk. Um, couldn't get away from talking about Brexit and all the kind of the, the reservations that UK businesses have right now with the, the fallout of Brexit. Um, but really pointing to, to water and involuntary migration as being the biggest risks for most businesses right now, particularly if you're a, a company like Marks & Spencers, which has its um, hand in lots of different pots, not least in agriculture and supplying food. Um, and it depends on a really sort of stark picture really about the risk of future food production, particularly in beef production. And he explains not too much in the distant future, and it's a meteoric cultivated beef. Uh, that will certainly be on the shelf, she suggests, in the next five to ten years. And actually, the cost of producing beef in laboratories has fallen so much in the last five years that actually it will soon be on uh, a sort of parity with traditional meats. That's really interesting. I think the future for kind of urban laboratory farming is certainly bright. He also talked about salads and, and greens being grown in these sort of vertical city farms. Uh, there's a company called Aero Farms, which Marks & Spencer seems to be in bed with um, sort of aeroponics technology. Uh, these kind of vertical farms are getting five times the yield of traditional farming per square foot without the energy, without the water costs, you know, totally organic, totally free of GMOs. Uh, and these brand new systems emerging. So it's absolutely fascinating stuff. Uh, Mike Barry was there, Marks & Spencer's Director for Sustainable Business. He was on good form as ever. Uh, and we were also treated to the company of Jonathan Porrett, who, who chairs the, the M&S Advisory Board, or the Plan A Advisory Board. And he was on blistering form, uh, made some very interesting points, actually, about how companies need to evolve. Again, drawing on comparisons with Brexit and the, the backlash, really, against the establishment here in the UK. Uh, people basically falling out of love with politicians, um, which probably happened a long time ago. But, but certainly that lack of trust is, is emanating through the, the business world as well. Uh, and, and Mr. Porritt spoke quite, quite brilliantly about how the need... Uh, for, for companies to start thinking about customers in a completely different way and rather than seeing them merely as passive consumers actually start treating them more as, as what he calls citizens and um, he kind of pointed to a lot of the work that he's doing uh, at Forum for the Future about citizen innovation. Um, he also talked about the need for a strong government and, and the, the need for kind of strong public-private partnerships uh, and also regulation at really sort of trying to deliver societal outcomes for us all so it's a fascinating event thanks everyone at MS for inviting me down there lots to lots to sort of draw out from that event uh, and good to see some familiar faces if you were there then uh, hello and i'm sorry i didn't get a chance to to say hello to too many people but um yeah it was a really good event okay before we get stuck into this week's main story with uh, mike uh, sorry mark harema uh, from New Light Technologies. Let's catch up on all this week's news with Vicky Knowles and explore who's doing what and why in the world of better business. Hi, Vic. Good to have you back. Thank you. It's good to be here again. Well, we miss you. I missed having this conversation last week, but thanks ever so much for jumping into the hot seat uh, while I was away. Thank you very much. No problems. It was fun, actually. Yeah, it sounds like you had a good chat with uh, with Heidi Raymond. She's a good gal. Yeah, she's she's got plenty going on. So, I mean, 25 minutes wasn't really enough. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and we had lots of good feedback. People saying that they much prefer you doing the interviews than me. No, they didn't. Surely no, I, not. I, I'm, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what you, what you got for us this week? Um, okay, so this week. So I know Glastonbury Festival is slowly leaving our consciousness now, but a Guardian article last week is already looking forward to next year's festival and beyond. 
So considering that last year they picked up around 5,000 abandoned tents at the festival, what's the alternative? Well, next year and beyond, we could be camping in cardboard and bioplastic tents. So there's Compatent, which the founder claims is the world's first compostable tent made from cornstarch bioplastic and also natural fibers like bamboo or silk to make it withstand wear and tear. And it biogrades in 120 days when composted. So it costs 50 quid. I think it's that's quite a bit more than your standard tent. But, um, and it won't be fully available till 2018. Okay, but one that already is available is Car Tent, which is dubbed the first cardboard tent, as it might suggest. Um, the Netherlands-based company partner with festivals to pre-pitch tents, which cost the consumer 55 euros or 42 pound, or as little as nothing if brands subsidize the fee completely by advertising on the side of the tent. So um, while you might think that it would be a pretty sloggy experience, apparently the tents can stand a few days of constant rain. Um, at the end, they're either recycled or turned into festival furniture or compost for mushroom farmers. So um, I know how much you love the idea of camping at festivals, Tom. So what do you think of those? <laughs> yeah, you, you know me. I, it's not my thing at all. I, to be honest, there was lots of videos going around, weren't there, after Glastonbury about this very problem. People... Mm. highlighting the fact that people just leave. I can't believe people just leave their tents behind it's just weird isn't it yeah um, but then because it's not my game I don't have any idea how much a tent would cost yeah. um it, it almost seemed in, in the article it says that the you know common tents are about 15 quid and that yeah. just seems so cheap for a tent I mean surely you don't need to buy a tent you know every year I mean how long do they last at these tents what the uh, the usual tents or these yeah I mean how much does a tent I mean how long does a tent <laughs> yeah. last yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, if you pay 15 quid, I don't think it, you, you, it might be broken by the end of Glastonbury. Right. People probably fall into your tent and stuff, I don't know. But um, yeah. yeah, I think if you're paying 15 quid, then it might not stand the test of time anyway. And then it's a bit, it's just quite wasteful, isn't it? It is, it is. And I, it seems like, I mean, you know, the products look good, but it just seems like it's a problem that doesn't, well, it's, it's a problem being solved that shouldn't have to be solved, in, in my view. <laughs> People yeah. just take their take their tents home. What's the matter with these people? Um, <laughs> I'd love to see some sort of initiative where you know the organisers of these festivals are actually you know getting the tents, fixing them if they're broken, and then actually giving them to people that actually need them. You know, like the, the you know the migrant camps over in Calais, for instance, could probably do a lot of these tents. That would oh. be interesting. But that'd um, be amazing. That could be your little response article to that one. Yeah, so actually, this would be a better <laughs> better. Yeah. Well, exactly. Um, so, yeah, for, for me, there's a new website. There's a new website launched by uh, Hubbub. Hubbub. Hubbub is a an organisation I think we've mentioned before on the show. It's a, it's a UK charity that specialises in helping companies kind of change behaviours, and it's done some brilliant campaigns, uh, particularly in London over the last year or so. Um, it used this thing. There was a, a particular street in London where they used this voting mechanism kind of bin to encourage people to put their cigarette rubbish in a in the bin rather than on the floor and they'd have to choose between you know whether Messi was better than Ronaldo for instance and, and they'd shove their cigarette butts in the in the appropriate bin uh, so lots of really good projects but they, and they've now launched this new website designed to help councils and businesses who are looking for ideas and ways to tackle uh, litter and, and waste um, and it's basically a website it's, it's neatstreets.co is the website and there's a whole bunch of anti-litter campaigns on there uh, the guy that runs uh, Hubbub is, is a guy called Truin Resterick. I'm sure many people know Truin. Uh, and he says that, you know, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, uh, let's let's share the learning of what's happened before and what's worked before in terms of campaigns. 
and and they're giving away ideas on this new website. I think it's brilliant ideas. So have a look at that, neatstreets.co. Yeah, it's, I really like this. Um, sharing best practice and learning sounds like another website, I know. Um, <laughs> but hopefully people in these areas will be particularly open to sharing because it's a collective ambition. It's not really something that's competitive. Yeah, and, and as Truin said, no one's doing this. The very, very websites or platforms that are actually sharing best practice when it comes to to this you know particular thing so it's um very much needed and it looks like a great site as well yeah it looks really cool actually it's neat very well done very well done uh yeah so what, what else we got going on okay so um oh you know we're always talking about this um but ocean plastic again um, so I came across a Kickstarter campaign, which I love going on Kickstarter because it's just kind of the forefront of innovation, which I love. Um, but by the time this podcast goes live, the crowdfunding will be over. But this particular project has already been overfunded, so it's pretty popular. Um, so obviously, recently we talked about ocean plastic and things like Adidas shoes. Well, these guys at Norton Point are crowdfunding sunglasses made from just that. So recovered high-density polyethylene ocean plastics. Um, so they're also pledging to remove one pound of plastic for every one pair of sunglasses they sell and giving back 5% of net profits to global cleanup education and remediation practices. And their partner, the Plastic Bank, has a network of collection centers in Haiti, helping to create jobs and income for local collectors. And then Norton Point are hoping to build their own. And the video, I think it should be still up once, um, even when the crowdfunding is over. But it's really quite an inspiring video about how they went over there. And they just, they kind of just, it was more than they thought they were, you know, they, they turned it into something bigger than they thought. Um, but what I found kind of interesting is that they're using sunglasses to actually show that there's an appetite for ocean plastic, considering that the virgin kind is about 10 times cheaper and that people actually want to buy this stuff and it's a good selling point. Um, so the glasses are pretty cool. $79, I think they're going for. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's great. It's, I'll, I'll have a look at the video, but it's great when you've got a company that's tackling a big problem and then creates a product that's actually attractive and you know viable and the sunglasses look really good. And... Um, you know, uh, this week's show is all about making plastics without the use of fossil fuel-based, you know, oils, materials. And okay. and this looks like another really simple process, really closing that loop, uh, returning part of the profits to kind of fund cleanup, uh, which then gives them obviously more raw materials to work with. And uh, and there's lots of companies doing this, and it's it's another really, really good example. I've just, just spoken this week with a, a another company that we'll probably feature on the show in a, in a few weeks time but uh doing something quite similar and and, and actually finding an end product that that really consumers want to buy into is the crucial is the crucial element and and these guys are doing a great job these look great these sunglasses they do and it's it's win-win-win because you know the people collecting the plastic make a living you know um we're cleaning up the oceans and we get a product that we like so yeah, yeah. So, you know, 12 million tons of plastics ends up in the oceans every year. Oh. It's just, it's a staggering statistic and it's such a massive challenge. And hopefully all these you know, collective pieces of action, different companies starting up, uh, will, will slowly have an impact. But uh, it's going to be, you know, it's a, it's a big, big uphill challenge anyway. Definitely. Um, so finally, we, there's a nice piece on sustainable brands this week uh, by a guy called Daniel Matthews, and he's looking at what's happening over in the US in the state of West Virginia. 
basically, the state is taking advantage of the federal farm bill, which uh, President Obama signed back in 2014. And it's a, it's a piece of legislation that allows states to cultivate hemp uh, for research and pilot programs. Uh, and there's 23 other states that have already started doing something similar over the last couple of years. Um, but researchers from West Virginia University are teaming up with a, a new startup uh, called AgriCarb. Uh, and they're really investigating the, the, the farming infrastructure benefits of, of hemp, which is uh, you know, a resilient plant. And there's all different sorts of reasons why it's, uh, it's, a, it's a decent um, kind of crop. Uh, not least because it, it can help uh, clean up contaminated land. Uh, so that's what's happening in West Virginia. There's lots of contaminated brownfield sites throughout the state uh, that, that, that companies just find too expensive to clean up. So this might be one way of, of cleaning up the fields, uh, but also to use the plants for products uh, that will help kind of, you know, bring, bring a new economy to, to the state. Hemp has a, a wide variety of uses, textiles, fuels, paper, all different sorts of construction materials. So, um, yeah, it sounds, sounds really good, this one. Yeah, um, hemp is quite a special plant, isn't it? I had no idea about, um, I know what you're referring to with the cleaner. It's called phytoremediation. I hope that's how you pronounce it. Um, and yeah, it just slurps up the bad stuff in the soil. It just sounds like, I didn't I didn't know it did that. It's quite cool. Um, did you know as well that among the products that it can be made into, it can be used as a plastic alternative. And apparently the door panels of certain BMWs, Mercedes and Bugattis are manufactured using it. Really? Yeah. Um, so the title of that article was um, oh, it's something to do with um, will it disrupt the energy industry? So That's do you right, think it, it would? Do you think it will? Well, possibly. I mean, this is it. You need these kind of research projects. Obviously, the legislation helps, doesn't it? And, and setting that kind of regulatory framework for states to kind of experiment. I guess if you can do some research and pilot some different ways that uh, particularly of making money, um, then yes. this could really take off. But but AgriCarb sounds like a really interesting business. It'd be great to explore them a bit further, perhaps get them on the show in the future. But uh, I'd love to know more about what they're up to. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, come on the show. <laughs> know, it's all about hemp. So that's that's really cool. <laughs> Yeah. Um, cool. Well, that's that's wonderful, Vix. It's uh, good to have you back. It sounds like I know you you moved flats, didn't you, a few weeks ago, and then we had some trouble getting you on the line. At, but it sounds like your internet is so much better, and it's um, oh. it's it's a pleasure to talk to you rather than uh, the usual <laughs> the usual challenge. We just uh, I'm so challenging to talk to. <laughs> you are, yeah, yeah. But no, good to have you back, and uh, and thank you very much. And we'll sh- we'll we'll catch you next week. Yeah, you're welcome. And um, see you next week. Now it's time to meet this week's guest business. Now plastics get a lot of attention on this show and in the wider environmental media on the whole because, I mean, frankly, they're nasty. They're nasty. I mean, the chemical building blocks that make plastics so versatile are the same components that might harm people and the environment. And we so often hear of stories of that just happening. On average, 300 million tonnes of plastic are produced around the world every year. And of this, 50% is for disposable applications such as packaging. Plastics manufacturing makes up 4.6% of the annual petroleum consumption in the US, and that's roughly 331 million barrels a year. And none of that energy is recovered when plastics are disposed of in landfills, and very little is recovered when plastic waste is incinerated. 
Recycling plastics poses major logistical difficulties too, including effective sorting, which increases the cost, and the mixing of different plastic streams, affecting the resultant post-consumer products. Yes, biodegradable plastics are coming, recycling infrastructure is improving, but there are big problems with plastic, from the way it's made to the way it's disposed of. So what if there was a different way of making plastics? What if there was a different way of making plas plastics that use pollution as the raw material? So rather than being something that causes environmental problems, the production of plastic actually helps us to take nasty greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Well, there is. Here's the CEO of New Light Technologies, Mark Harema, explaining how his company is capturing carbon emissions, combining it with oxygen to create plastics that are being used everywhere. Products. Yes, biodegradable plastics are coming, recycling infrastructure is improving, but there are big problems with plastic, from the way it's made to the way it's disposed of. So what if there was a different way of making plastics? What if there was a different way of making plas plastics that use pollution as the raw material? So rather than being something that causes environmental problems, the production of plastic actually helps us to take nasty greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, where well, there is. Here's the CEO of New Light Technologies, Mark Harema, explaining how his company is capturing carbon emissions, combining it with oxygen to create plastics that are being used everywhere. Mark, thanks for joining us here on The Better Business Show. Delighted to have you with us. Uh, I'm really keen to explore your, your fascinating business in much more detail. Uh, you guys have been around for, for a while now, and I'm sure there'll be a number of our listeners that are familiar with, with New Light Technologies. But, um, but for those that, that aren't aware, maybe you could give us a, a brief elevator pitch. Tell us about the business. Sure. So um, 13 years ago, I came across a newspaper article about um, carbon emissions. And the thought was, you know, why are we talking about taxing this stuff or pumping it underground? Why can't we look at this as a resource, um, as maybe a source of good, right? Because if we could do that, then we could we could change our approach on this. Um, you know what we've what we've been trying to do has had very sort of limited impact. Um, certainly, you know, in the United States, our our context, um, it's it, it's tough to see that there's been a, a huge amount of progress on on climate change. And so we said, what if we could look at you know a different paradigm where we could be competing for this as a resource. And so what we ended up developing was a way to take carbon emissions um, and combine those with air and turn those into a, a thermal plastic polymer. Um, so it's a, a multiple, mel multiple molecule that can be used to replace plastics that would otherwise be made from oil. Right. Uh, and you make it sound incredibly simple and straightforward. No doubt it's a very complex process. Um, so essentially, you're taking you're taking air, you're mixing it with methane, and, and you're you're pumping it into a tank, and you're turning it into kind of pellets. Um, where do, where do you source the the kind of methane from? How how are you getting your kind of raw material? Well, we started with methane. Um, so our sort of first business model was based around methane from digest digesters at things like farms, wastewater treatment plants, and then also expanding to landfills, which we have a lot of in the U.S. Um, we've subsequently started to develop a carbon dioxide conversion path, um, so we're now able to do both. Um, but on the methane side, the, the highest volume of uh, methane that's, that's being flared here in the U.S. Uh, is either from landfills right. or from um, you know, fracking-type operations. But 
But our main focus for commercial plants is landfills, and we also have a facility that's running off of uh, methane being produced at a, a dairy digester. Right, right. And and how much plastic are you actually making right now? How much, how much kind of uh, greenhouse gas are you taking in, and how much are you actually producing? Well, let, let me give you a sense of the scales of, of kind of where we're at. Um, uh, so uh, this is kind of fun for us because, you know, I was there when we were just a, an interesting idea and then a little test tube that you could hold. <laughs> in the past 12 months, we have signed uh, 74 billion pounds in air carbon contracts, um, starting with a 19 billion pound offtake agreement from a company called Vinmar in Houston, a uh, 10 billion pound uh, production license with IKEA, and then just a couple of days ago, uh, we announced a, a large license with a company called POC in, in the Netherlands. Um, we've had product launches with Dell, Hewlett Packard, um, announced partnerships with companies like The Body Shop. And so um, we've seen a, a pretty dramatic acceleration in the amount of uh, material that we're producing. The, the next plant that we're um, getting ready to build is a 50 million pound per year plant. So in uh, metric terms, that's a 23,000 ton per year production facility. Um, and then so to kind of get a, a, a general ballpark feel for kind of where that stands as far as gas utilization is, it depends on the source, right? Um, whether it's methane or carbon dioxide, then what the baseline is. But just to kind of ballpark it, just assume sort of a one-to-one ratio, right? So if you're making 50 million pounds per year, um, roughly speaking, that's going to be the weight that would otherwise be in the air. Sure. So things are going well. I mean, <laughs> suffice to say, where, where did the idea come from, Mark? Where did this, where did this, this German of an idea, like you say, the, the test tube and the, I mean, where, where did that all start? Well, even before I get to that, so you're right. From a commercial standpoint, we're really excited with where we are. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's always the next mountain to climb, right? So um, <laughs> we're we're infinitely impatient with with seeing this thing, you know, out on a global scale uh, for lots of reasons. Um, and so while all those numbers sound fantastic, you've got a, you've got a very impatient team that's, that's pushing as hard as we, as we possibly can. Mm. Um, so the, uh, it all started actually kind of in a funny spot. Um, uh, I was at uh, Princeton in the summer between my junior and senior year. Um, I was reading a newspaper article about, um, cows and the amount of methane that, that cows emit. And there were some two really interesting features in this, in this article. One was um, the fact that it's uh, belches from the mouth. Uh, that's where like 98% of the methane comes from. Didn't know that. Um, and the second thing was just the volume. And the article, if I remember correctly, was something on the order of like 600 liters per dairy cow per day. And what was so important about that number for me was it was very concrete, right? And you could use it to do stuff where you said, okay, for a, for a farm that has a thousand dairy cows, that's 600,000 liters per day. Okay. Well, what is that in terms of value? And, and the, the light bulb moment was, oh my gosh, you know, this is a, this is a valuable resource that's just going into the air. And then you start to look at, um, you know, landfills and places where they're flaring. And, and for me, and then later for us, it was just this, we're just putting carbon into the air and, and just take away all the environmental things for a moment just looking at that as just a sheer resource there's got to be something we can do with that and that's that's where it all started yeah yeah and it's exciting that journalism can can help trigger 
those sort of ideas to form and uh, and and to, for for startups like yours to, to to take off, which is very exciting. I mean, the end product. That you well, call it, go, go on, go on, Mark. Oh, I, yeah, just a funny funny story about that. So. The, uh, the article was called Getting the Cows to Cool It, and it was by a guy named Gary Polakovic. So Gary Polakovic is an extremely accomplished journalist uh, in the environmental space and has done a lot of great things just in the environmental space in general, aside from journalism. And um, 10 years after we started the company, we, we finally scaled up to commercial-scale production. So this is you know a 50-foot-tall reactor and was really kind of a pinnacle moment, both personally and professionally. And we said we'd been quiet most of that time for nine years, no website, nothing. And um, so we said, you know, maybe now in order for our customers to start to be able to tell the story, we need to you know, kind of open up and tell the story. So I called the guy who, uh, who wrote the article, Gary, and I invited him to our facility. And, um, you know, at first he was, he was very skeptical and we walked him through and he's, you know, walking down the long line of production. And he was, you know, sort of kind of looking a little bit bewildered. And he said, gosh, you, you read my article and you've been working on this for 10 years. I don't know whether to say hey, you're welcome or I'm sorry. <laughs> so. uh, it sounds like a very journalistic thing for him to say. Um, so so, so the, the end product, Mark, this is what you call air carbon. Um, now, what, is, what does that material look like and feel like? I mean, how does it compare with traditional plastic? I mean, this is what you're competing with, isn't it? So what is the, what is the characteristics yeah. and how does, it, how does it compare? Well, when we first started, the kind of most basic characteristic was around uh, something similar to polypropylene. Uh, right, so this is your sort of rigid plastic. So if you think of like a, a plastic chair or an appliance, that's kind of on the rough order of magnitude of, of what this stuff looked like. Um, since that time, we've, we've developed a number of grades of material by making modifications to the process where we can get more flexible type things. So okay. uh, that's why you've seen us get into things like bags, cell phone cases, uh, um, other things that just have a higher degree of flexibility. So, um, you know, at this point, our goal as a company is to try to develop materials that can replace as much of the market as we can. So starting with polypropylene, Moving into polyethylene and then and then other grades, so it's it's a continual growth process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've talked about the problem of, of greenhouse gases, which is you know well documented. But but how big a problem is is plastic? I mean, it's not something that people really think about much, is it? It's such a ubiquitous material; it's kind of everywhere. But people don't really consider the the, the kind of environmental impact of, of producing plastic, do they? Well. You know, I, I think there's a growing consciousness for, you know, what plastic right now means to the world. Um, and it does a couple bad things. One, for every pound of plastic or every kilogram of plastic that, that you make, on average, you're emitting about three times that weight in CO2E into the air. So, number one, you're creating, you know, new carbon. Um, number two, where does it go? Um, and particularly in the U.S. where recycling isn't, isn't as good as it is in Europe, there's a lot of problems with that. And there's a growing consciousness for things like the Great Garbage Patch. You know, where's all this stuff going? It's going somewhere and it's not going away. And yeah. I think there's a growing aversion to what, you know, this old term plastic means, which is kind of this wasteful, you know, pollutive type material. And we've got to get away from that. It's not working. We're, we're creating carbon and we're polluting the world. And so what we need are, are new solutions. But... What I think is really interesting about plastics in general is 
if you look at it differently, if this, if this stuff wasn't harming the environment, it was actually restoring it, you've got this massive conveyor belt of, of material. So let's say all of that, 660 billion pounds per year, could be used as a conveyor belt for reducing the amount of carbon in the air. That could be a pretty cool model. And if you can set it up in a way, and, and the world has a lot of work to do with recycling um, and, and biodegradability, um, and we've got to get there as well. But I, I think there is a paradigm where the world's materials can actually be used for good. And I think IKEA is a great example of this. They're constantly trying to use their supply chain to actually do good in the world. And, you know, taking air carbon as, as a next step, you know, what if that chair was responsible for a reduction in carbon emissions? It's, it's a totally different way of looking at, at what our materials mean for the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean, what happens to your materials at the end of their life? I mean, are they biodegradable? So we make a molecule called PHA, which stands for polyhydroxyalkanoate. And um, polyhydroxyalkanoates are um, well known to be naturally biodegradable. Uh, um, now, with that said, there are certain applications where uh, customers have requested that we render them non-biodegradable. Um, you know, let's just take, for instance, a dashboard for a car. Um, they don't want even the perception that that thing could biodegrade. So right, right. the good thing about our material is it provides optionality, where if you know that this thing's going to end up in the ocean or you have reasonable to believe that it's, you know, not very well recycled, then you might opt to make it biodegradable. But it starts with having the option. Yeah. And, and you talked before about the, the numerous different applications for air carbon. And... Um, uh, and what's the, what's the ultimate ambition for you guys? Is it to, is it to kind of you know wipe out traditional plastics entirely? Is that where you want to go with this? Um, look, I, I think when you when you look at at um, oil based fossil fuel based plastics, um, they're doing some good in the world. You got to recognize that they're lightweighting things, you know, reducing fuel costs. Um, when you compare them to you know the other the other alternatives, there's a reason why the world has has taken it up so much. So there, there's a value in, in that kind of product. But, yeah, our goal is to say, hey, yeah, that kind of product is good, but what if we could make it in, in a better way where we're, we're using captured carbon instead of fossil fuels? Um, some of those materials could be biodegradable if we need them to be. Some could be designed to be more recyclable. Um, there's just a better way to do it. So, yeah, that's, that is our ambition. Um, now, the other big ambition is to just kind of – um, maybe be a catalyst for how we're looking at carbon emissions. I think when, when I, at least in the U.S., and maybe this isn't as much in Europe, but there is a large amount of almost resignation that this path we're going down is just sheer inevitability, right? You know, the, the battle is lost, and now it's just figuring out how to deal with, with that and accept it and adapt. Yeah. We just don't agree with that. We fundamentally don't agree with this concept that the battle is lost. And we think that it's exciting and important to show that, well, wait a minute, if we can capture this stuff and turn it into a solid, useful material, maybe, maybe, maybe there is some hope here. Um, now, air carbon alone isn't going to fix the problem by any means, but um, we hope we can be part of a new wave of technologies that, that look at greenhouse gas differently. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And well, I don't know if you know the guys at Ecovative, and we we had them on the show a, a few months back, and uh, talking to the CEO Eben Bayer there about how the company's obviously making packaging materials from from mushroom technology, and they've developed this service whereby they're allowing their customers to kind of try out the process of creating their own materials from from mushrooms. So they have these kind of DIY kits that they send out. To, to customers, and I just wonder whether you guys will do something similar, almost to kind of, I don't know, license your, your technology to allow others to make use of it. I mean, it just seems that there's a, you know, everyone needs air carbon, doesn't? Don't they? You know, how do you scale this up more quickly? Well, you're 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 painting a, a a picture that I that I really really love, which is, you know, how do we get this not just material, but but then eventually the technology into as many hands as possible, um, and we've started to do that. Right. So um, right now we're doing a combination of direct manufacturing, um, but we're also starting to license the technology. So the IKEA deal is not a sales. I mean, part of it is sales, but but the main component is we've given them the right to build their own plants and start to make their own material. Um, The the deal we just announced with Pac, um, that's also giving them the ability to take the technology and make their own material from their own gas. So we're really we're really starting to go down that path because we believe that the best way to kind of get this out there quickly and at large global scale, it, it's got to be a licensed technology. Now you got to do that intelligently and, and responsibly, and we're, we're we're we keep figuring out how to do that better and on a more wide scale. Um, but I, I definitely share your vision. <laughs> and I mean, it's a, obviously it's it's your business, it's your patented process, but. Is there anything stopping other people doing something similar, or is anyone out there doing something similar to what you're doing? Well, you know, when we got into the space um, over a decade ago, there had been a number of efforts um, for many decades prior to New Light. You know, the, while it was a new idea for, for me, um, I wasn't the first to have the idea of turning carbon emissions into something useful. So, yeah, there, there's lots of groups out there that have been looking at the space for a long time. The problem was um, essentially cost of production, and, right. and and so when you boil that down, so we were we were quiet for nine years, no website, you know, we we were basically operating in our in our sort of factory cave out here, um, where we said, look, until we have a, a material that can outcompete fossil based materials on price, there's just nothing to talk about because all you're really going to do is move this stuff in vi- in very niche quantities. But in order to have the kind of impact that we need, um, this stuff needs to outcompete on price. Mm. And, and that was the core challenge that, that took us so long. Um, right. And in order to do that, we had to innovate a number of new technologies. So, yes, it's, it's possible. Anybody can do it on their you know, tabletop. Um, mm. um, but to, to get it to a place where you have very low cost, very high functionality, that was challenging. So... Um, mm. But again, you know, we we want eventually to get this into you know as many hands as we can, and we're trying to figure out the best ways to do that. And, and does that does that remain the kind of number one challenge for you right now? The thing that's kind of I don't know keeping you up at night is it is it around just how do you keep scaling this? How do you keep meeting new partners that want to make use of it? Is that the thing that's that's really driving you on right now? <laughs> the biggest thing that sort of keeps me up is is just speed. Um, you know, we're not a software company. Um, where you can write a program and then three weeks later, you know, you hit massive scale. This is heavy manufacturing, and you're dealing with stuff that takes months to engineer, design, months to, you know, procure, months to install. 
so the the timelines are just very different and given our level of just sheer just impatience to to see this at, at you know larger and larger scales um you know that's that's probably the biggest thing that sort of keeps me up is just the speed of getting it out there yeah 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 and so so what's next then for for new light is it about i don't know working with different uh, greenhouse gases or or is it about i don't know finding problems that need solving or, or is it about finding solutions and then trying to find a a problem that they'll deal with how, how do you kind of see the future well you know i i alluded to the co2 and and that's something that we're we're excited about uh expanding into um and that's been a one of our sort of quiet pet projects for for a bit of time and we're excited to expand that um you know <laughs> i've certainly got uh, a lot of things that sort of brew in, in my brain around you know what's what's next for the company but really right now the, the number one thing is just executing on on the path that we've got we've, we've got a fantastic technology um we're starting to see good commercial growth and now it's really taking it to to the step of you know, where this becomes something that's truly impacting the world. You know, one of my, one of my, you know, goals is eventually someday you look at Wikipedia and you look at, you know, how did the world solve climate change, right? So whenever this is, and you click on that page and maybe one of the little tiny uh, pies on the pie graph might be, you know, air carbon. I don't know how big that, that, that little pie slice is going to be, but I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that, that we eventually are able to have, you know, that much of an impact where we can show up on, on a graph like that. So yeah, right now it's just, it's just executing on what we've got. Yeah. Well, do you know what, Mark, it's been a fascinating journey and um, it sounds like you're, you're going good guns and it's, uh, it's fascinating to, to hear about your story. So thank you for, uh, thank you for sharing it with us here on the Better Business Show. And uh, yeah, we wish you all the best with it. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be with you and thanks for having me on. Mark Arema there, CEO and founder of New Light Technologies. Uh, fascinating business, incredibly smart guy, and they're doing some wonderful stuff. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more from, from New Light in the coming years as they just explode and take off. I think the fact they're licensing that technology and, and the likes of Ikea and Body Shop are really making use of it. Such a cool technology, such a huge problem that they're solving. So brilliant, brilliant guest this week. As ever, we have more notes online, which has some pics of Mark and the New Light team and, and the various air carbon products. Just go to www.betterbusiness.show. Um, and we're very keen to know of any other great organizations that are out there really shaking things up, creating positive change in the world. So if there's an organization that you've come across that deserves to be featured here on the show, please do let us know. Maybe it's your business that you want to feature. Just get in touch. Uh, Tom Idle at narrativematters.co.uk. Um, and yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So last week we kicked off a brand new segment of the show looking at some big ideas for a sustainable future. Uh, we've been working with a team at Terrafinity, which is a, an international consultancy that works with companies to help them develop their leadership in ecological, social and business value. Uh, and we're helping them launch a, a brand new series of ebooks, uh, which kicked off last week, uh, offering thoughts, provocations and big ideas for how we might create a sustainable future on a planet of 9 billion people. So we asked Joss Tantrum, a founding partner of Terra Affinity, to share with us his big ideas, all taken from this brilliant series of new books. And we have part two for you right now. This time, Joss suggests the idea of lustrum trading as a tool for making our economic system better, fairer and more resilient. Here's Joss. Calm down. 
one. It's only Lustrum trading. Ever wondered why, if markets are so rational, there is so much talk of market confidence and market sentiment? Recent times have shown the clearest indication yet of the real power within our societies. The Eurozone crisis have, has been precipitated by credit rating concerns and banks have failed to pass on the bounty of quantitative easing to businesses which make actual stuff. Politicians, technocrats and commentators have paid attention to only one constituency, the markets. While this is undoubtedly bizarre, it might make sense if the markets could be said to be more rational, more objective and somehow more able to take decisions for the common good than politicians and others who might be said to have narrow or subjective agendas. Yet markets are not objective in any way. They're not even supposed to be. Their goal is to seek profit, and often profit lies in market movement, and if you're a hedge fund, in volatility. As with any crowd behaviour, market players move relative to the herd, not through rationality. Markets are innately hysterical, not rational. Let's take a recent example. In 2011, the UK bank Lloyds temporarily lost its CEO, who took a leave of absence due to overwork. The market reaction? Lloyds stock immediately lost 25% of its value. But what had really changed in the fundamentals of the business? Had 25% of its mortgage customers defaulted? Had bad debts increased? No. The underlying nature and purpose of the business was unchanged from the previous day. All that had changed is that one man in a suit decided he needed a break. It's not really news, is it? This is not to say that profit warnings and temporarily departing men in suits do not have some relationship to the future viability of a business. It's just that markets are unable to act proportionately because of the herd mentality. No one wants to be left behind, so everyone stampedes and people get crushed underfoot. It's time to move away from market hysteria, market sentiment and market confidence. Such emotionally volatile behaviour does not deliver the rational, logical, evidentially-based decision-making that ought to be at the heart of building and maintaining the security and prosperity of the human species. All the time short-term profit-taking provides overwhelmingly larger rewards than long-term stewardship, sustainability will never be a priority for either companies or markets. Yet abolishing quarterly reports, as suggested by John Kay's review of how the equity market functions in the UK, does not go far enough, not by a long shot. Longer timescale solutions are required. One provocative proposal is to try to minimise the subsequent hysteria of the recent years in finance by radically restricting trading in shares and through this allowing companies to respond to the fundamentals of resource supply, customer demand and wider environmental social trends without the distractions of the emotional meltdowns of the market. Shares for each listed company should be traded once every five years on one day three months after the company makes its lustrum five-yearly dividend. Companies should report their ecological, social and economic performance annually, yet their decision-making should not be affected by share trading, which acts only in the interests of share traders, not in the interests of the company, economy, planet, society at large or even the real asset owners, share and pension holders. Naysayers may argue that five years presents a cover which would allow all sorts of dodgy company behaviours and that the scrutiny of the market presents a guard against nefarious activity. However, if that were true, then our current market would bear this out, and it does not. Companies will continue to rise and fall through fair means or foul under Lustrum trading, but the overall outcome just might be a more sustainable one. This shouldn't put all investors out of work or prevent individuals from buying or selling shares. On any given day, a multitude of companies will have shares available to trade, just not all of them all of the time. 
We have to find our way away from hysteria and to design markets and economies which automatically value and reward long-term success, stewardship and social utility. Trading a company's shares once every five years might be a valuable contribution towards this goal. The idea might not be bulletproof, but it is interesting. Just Tantrum there, founding partner of Terrafinity. The Towards 9 Billion ebook series is out now and can be downloaded for free at the Terrafinity website, www.terrafinity.com. And we'll have more of Joss next week. So that's it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye. Thank you.